This week I listened to a classic clip from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's a, actually a really sad one. My wife told me that it's been making its rounds on Instagram. But Will Smith, if you remember the show, is abandoned by his father and he lives with his uncle. <clears throat> and there's a section of time where his Will Smith's father, Lou, shows back up into the picture, and he's about to leave again. And the uncle confronts him about this and says he has responsibilities to take care of. And it's a wonderful section. I'm going to try not to mimic it because I'll probably cry. It is something that is tragic. But after his father leaves, he says goodbye to Will hesitantly. And he's expressing his anger and says, I don't need him. I I learned how to shoot a basket by myself. I uh, learned how to shave for myself. And he said, I don't need him. It's better without him. And then at the before the scene ends, he breaks down and he says, why does he not want me? Children need a sign from their father that they are wanted, desired and cherished. And. As much as uh, a tough guy like Will, or he's trying to be in that scene, wants to say, I can do it without him, it, it cuts us to the core. And in this first part of our text here today, we see a sign, a, a sign of incorporation from the father to his adopted children. <clears throat> Something that the father does do, does show us, as opposed to uh, Will Smith's dad in that scene. First, let us just begin by uh, noting what's going on in verse 14 through 17. This is the first section, which will lead into what happens with Simon. There is the wonderful conversion of the Samaritans. As you know, through the Gospels, the Samaritans were not very liked people. (laughs) Uh, They were spoken of poorly. It was actually very uh, uh, risque, as it were, for Jesus to tell a story about the Good Samaritan uh, because they were a hated peoples. They were a half race of Jews, not, not fully Jews, and they had embraced pagan practices, but now they have been converted. And <clears throat> what happens here in this scene is there's a, a report that of all that had happened that makes it back to Jerusalem Remember, just the apostles were there at the time because of the persecution. And now there is a sending of two of the apostles uh, during this mass conversion. We, we, we must just note today how odd that would actually be. <laughs> if, if there was a mass conversion and all Vina came to Christ, even though that would be a wonderful thing, we wouldn't send a report to anybody. <laughs> Who's the report to be sent to? I don't, I don't know of any apostles that exist anymore. So this is a unique time and place. And two of those, inner three, you know that there's a number of times where we see three individuals, Peter, John, and James going up and being with <clears throat> Jesus himself, like on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and the like. There's an inner ring of apostles. And these two, John... This is the last thing that we see from John in all of Acts. John the Apostle and Peter are sent to go and check things out and specifically to pray over these people. 
<clears throat> so <clears throat> there are some things that are are uh, one of a kind kinds of things. We might call this a a historical redemptive event, which means that it's a particular act of redemption in time, historical redemptive. <laughs> it's God saving work in history. And it's, we term it something like that because it's not the normative pattern of the church. If it were, well, we would be able to list the successors of the apostles and we'd be able to go talk to them. And if something crazy happened, they'd be able to come here. But obviously that's not the case. That's not God's intention for all of history. Apostles are to pass away. Same with some of these signs uh, as a normative thing, you know. Uh, I don't remember the last time that I've walked by and somebody's been healed by my shadow. But those are the kinds of times that are upon them. So in some senses, this is not a pattern for us today. Yet that doesn't mean there aren't ordinary occurrences, normal things that happen here. One of those is the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands, which is something that we need to understand. This is an ordinary feature that we see taught specifically in other places in the Bible, although there's not a whole lot of biblical examples. But one of the common things that happen here um, is the laying on of hands. You'll remember maybe when Ed was ordained as an elder or a pastor in this church, I gave a biblical theology message on the laying on of hands and how we saw that through the Old Testament into the New And I encourage us that that should be the normative case for this church uh, in the future as well. And to summarize my message, because you wouldn't remember it unless I told you, and I wouldn't remember it unless I reflected and maybe looked at my notes. Uh, In short, the laying on of hands is simply uh, drawing special attention by those in authority and a, a recognition of a particular person. And it's setting them apart by their current authorities for a particular reason. That's why elders set their hands on, on deacons or they set their hands on, on, on fellow men who are ordained to be elders. We also see this in a parallel use in Scripture. James chapter 5 tells us about the elders particularly anointing a person with oil. Although it's not exactly the same as as laying on of hands, it's a very similar concept throughout the Old Testament. That is, the anointing of oil doesn't confer some magical power or something like that. Rather, it designates someone for an office. You'll think Jesus particularly is anointed by God, by the Spirit, and the God, uh, God the Father pronounces over him after his baptism, this is my son with whom I am well pleased Or all the priests of the Old Testament are anointed. Uh, It doesn't change fundamentally who they are. It it sets them apart, makes them holy to that purpose of their office. In the same way, James 5, the elders are said to anoint the sick person with oil, setting them apart, saying, God, recognize this person. We set them apart for healing if it would be your will. And we trust that if it is his will, it will be done. And so we lay our hands on them, pray for them, anoint them with oil. It is a different way of recognizing. But what is similar is the same thing that is here. There is a laying on of hands 
to confer these people and set them apart for one particular reason. And we have to ask ourselves or transition into understand, well, what is the significance then of them laying their hands on to the Samaritans? What are they setting them apart unto? What's going on here? Obviously, the direct answer that's given in Scripture is the giving of the Spirit or the reception of the Spirit, which may be veiled to us without explanation. Uh, I, in this section, what I want to do is I really want to take verse 17 and, and walk backwards in explaining it because I think it'll be more helpful for us than walking from verse 14 on, on down. <clears throat> in verse 17 in particular, we see that when they lay their hands on, on the Samaritans, they receive the Holy Spirit. Most commentators, and myself included, understand this to be some sort of visual manifestation of the Spirit coming on individuals, whether it be tongues and prophecy, that's how I take it, or some other sort of uh, visible manifestation. And, And that is because in verse 18, the response of Simon. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So he saw this, but the Spirit is invisible. God is Spirit. There must be something that is attached in order for anybody to see that which is invisible. It has to be made visible in some way, and it it seems likely that it would be tongues and prophecy a visual accompaniment. <clears throat> Let me give you a couple examples of why that might be the case and why I think Luke himself designates this as, as the pattern, though he doesn't say it explicitly here in this text. Um, the language of chapter 1 and 2, I'll just call out one section, chapter 233, reads, being therefore, speaking about Christ, exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the, pro- the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What were they seeing and hearing? Prophesying in tongues. (laughs) That's what they were seeing. That's what they were hearing. Thirdly, uh, this also will be happening in in a future occurrence with Cornelius. Verse 44 and 46 in those chapters that Cornelius is in, it says, The Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word, and they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. We have this similar pattern that is unfolding in the pages of Scripture. So what we should conclude is that the reception of the Spirit here was most certainly a visible manifestation from God, which people are witnessing. Okay, so that's the first, that's the first part. <clears throat> but we also must clarify because it would be a grave mistake to think that this was um, the initial reception of the Spirit. The initial reception of the Spirit. <clears throat> what is a necessary question or necessary to notice? Read verse 16 with me. It says, The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This does not mean the initial reception of the Holy Spirit. That is, 
It does not mean that this is the moment of their regeneration. It does not mean that this is the moment of their justification. So their regeneration being raised to new life. It is not the moment of their being made right with God by faith. If one understands that this is one of those moments, then you have to say that the logical implication is that the apostles themselves were not regenerate until Pentecost. That they did not have a true saving faith in Christ until Pentecost, which is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> the, Peter is commended for his faith in God much earlier on. God has revealed to Jesus or revealed to Peter that uh, uh, Peter understands that Jesus is the Messiah, not just some prophet. He had a saving faith previously, yet he was filled at a later time with the Holy Spirit. This is a secondary sign that testifies to a different reality or to a reality in a different way. We must also understand that those who'd want to say this, this would be maybe not modern charismatics as much, but older charismatics who would tie the gift of tongues. If you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not saved kind of theology. We have to say that that kind of concept, if you read it as this is when the Holy Spirit came, then you would overthrow explicit teaching of scripture. For example, Romans 8, 7, and 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And also John 6, 44 and 45, no, Jesus said, no one can come to me Unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day as it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has learned and heard from the father comes to me. Many more texts could be enumerated that teach that those who are dead in sin cannot believe in God. They cannot come to saving faith in and of themselves. It is the free act of God's grace which saves. The reason people believe is because God in his mercy gives life. So the old truism of the Reformed faith goes, regeneration, that is new life, precedes faith. Faith comes second. So if somebody walks an aisle in true faith, It's because they were converted by God in the seat. That is why they believe. That's why they stand. That's why they act. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees do not. So what we're to understand is this is a secondary sign that testifies to something about salvation. Something about salvation. And... And there are two things that we understand in Scripture. That where faith is present, so, so the Spirit is. The reason faith is present is because the Spirit's present. See? Abraham had the Spirit, just as you and I have the Spirit. I know that's hard for some people. Some people don't understand because we think oh, the spirit came at this time. No, no, no. A regeneration happened to every believer. Every single person who has ever come to faith in Christ 
is regenerate. They have the Holy Spirit. There is a new sign. There is something else going on in the New Testament, in the pages of Acts, the filling of the Spirit for mission across all the body in a different way. But what are we to understand? What does the sign mean? What, what um, does, and why does the church need it? What does it mean and why does the church need it? Just remember to your reading of the Gospels and the New Testament, you'll really easily see that it was extremely hard to those early Christians who were predominantly and ethnically Jewish to come to grips with the reality of what the Old Testament was saying. It was plain in the teaching, yet they didn't see it as clearly, albeit the, the Old Testament didn't explain it as thoroughly as the New Testament does. And so many missed the fact that all of the nations were being grafted into the promises and the salvation of the Messiah. They don't have a different salvation than the Jews. They have the same salvation because they have the same Savior. All the promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And therefore, when you receive Jesus Christ, you have all the promises that are attached to him, who is a Jew, ethnically. Yet what made Israel, Israel is not their ethnic identity. It was that they knew and served the living God. And that becomes very obvious from the New Testament. There's one people of God and one salvation of God throughout all time. This sign shows that the Father is bestowing the gift of his love. The Holy Spirit is called this gift. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, God in free grace shows that he loves these people and have granted to them the same salvation that has fallen upon the apostles and the Jews previously. You remember, they're not fully Jewish. So they need a a sign that also is testified by the direct appointees of Jesus Christ himself. You don't have many of those in history. There are those like Paul, those like Peter and John who have been told by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you are my apostle. And they have a particular authority to acknowledge and to say, well, what, what can we do about this? This is, this is what God is doing. This is a sign of their incorporation into God's family, not with the lesser status, with the same status, access to all the same promises. This is the kind of token that a father gives to his son whom he loves. You are mine. You have my very own spirit. And so the laying on of hands and the sign of the spirit is mostly to give indication that the people of God is growing. It's breaking down all the borders, all the barriers that separated Jew and Gentile. That's why we're really only going to see this kind of occurrence, you say twice, one more major time, which is with Cornelius, a complete Gentile. That will hopefully have made the picture very clear, and we'll have a couple chapters 
at that point on the section. But this is the father's love being signed to his children. You are full members of the new covenant with all the promises of God. So in application, in order to be secure Christians and to not be swept away, we should notice and know one thing, especially about the scriptures that happen all over, is that the signs in scripture are never apart from the words of scripture. They, they mutually inform one another. So, for example, if we say, well, what does this sign mean? Well, really, it's very simple. It's just fulfilling what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8. Power will come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is the power that is coming upon these other people. It's a, it's a sign of the fulfillment of God's promises. What happens in our day is that many falsely claim supernatural activity, and then they use that to shoehorn false teaching in, and they use that to grant some other sort of desires, and they, they are, are willing to to do that what in in order to promote some sort of immorality you know sometimes it's explicit out front you see it so like those who would identify as gay christian that movement will say something like there's a new movement of the spirit because if if you grant that that's the reality then how can you argue with it but this granting Um, is totally divorced from the clear teaching of Scripture. That's how you spot false teaching. There's supernatural stuff or claim to be, and then it's totally divorced from the Scripture. Sometimes it's explicit to promote um, that sort of thing, or sometimes it's just to promote somebody's wealth. They actually just want to make money off people, and this is a clever way to do it, to promise healing and so forth. But we should understand that in, throughout the whole New Testament, I just uh, ask you to be a Berean about it and go test this as you're reading through the scriptures this year. The, the signs of the Spirit are, are always in fulfillment of scripture, something that's explicitly stated. So we should never separate the two. If we do, it'll lead to lots of hard times for ourselves and for others. Now, this is the first section. Uh, Now, this transitions into Simon and what Simon does. Now, I won't read the whole section. There's a lengthy rebuke, but Simon sees this all and says, hey, give me that power. I'm going to give you cash for it. And so Simon recognizes that the apostles in particular have an authority that other people don't. Their hands were laid on them. The spirit was given. They have an authority that other people don't. And he desires to whatever they got that's different than the other people. I want to get that. And he's willing to exchange money for it. He is in essence trying to buy the priesthood as it were. Uh, We catch the fact if we're if we're a careful reader of something that has been going on and has already been. Uh, hinted at in Luke's writings, but we see that this kind of request with Simon 
shows that he had not really abandoned his former beliefs of magic and power. He believes that spirits can be communicated with and gotten power from and then operated. And he's just transferred that now to the Holy Spirit. He hasn't he hasn't truly become a believer. That's that's what's being seen here. Uh, what he is understanding this to be and his question is because he assumes that this magical worldview that he had, this magical beliefs where you can communicate with the dead or something like that, some spirits gain power and then have authority. You'll see here, and, and I'll, just, I'll just read it, <clears throat> if you're listening carefully, the idea of power that he asked for had already come up. In verse 11 of chapter 8, verse 11 reads, And they all paid attention to him, that is Simon, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Oops, sorry, I want to go back one verse 2. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. This is what he wanted. He wanted some sort of supernatural power for himself and in itself, not to be a minister of Christ, not for anything like that. His deep desire was for people to praise him. And the way to get that is by gaining power somehow, even from the supernatural place. But Peter rebukes this sharply and seriously And I find it to be extremely insightful, and I want to spend a little bit more time on it, and we don't have the time to spend on it, so I'm going to reserve my comments just to verse 20, though I want uh, Peter's word against this Simon to, to at least be in your mind fully. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. How serious is this error? What we see is Peter doesn't, doesn't mince any words at all. <clears throat> and as, as I was reading this week, one of the commentators noted, another commentator uh, by the name of J.B. Phillips, and he put Peter's words into modern vernacular so that we might feel the force of them, and I think it would be appropriate. And so in our modern uh, vernacular, it might be as though Peter says, to hell with you and your money. That's, that's the strength of his rebuke. To hell with you and your money. Most everyone with a cursory knowledge of the Bible knows that Peter has been on the receiving end of a rebuke like that. Peter was praised. Blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And then Jesus reveals that he's going to die and he's going to be uh, handed over to crucifixion by the scribes and the Pharisees and the rulers of Israel. <clears throat> and he would rise again. But Peter, not wanting this to happen, 
says, no, Jesus, let it never be to you. And so Jesus says the famous words, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In the same way, Peter has very strong and fitting rebuke. Well, first of all, because they're done by the Spirit of God. And second of all, because they're addressing someone who is in a level of air that the, the, the candor of the word, the candor of the word, is that what I'm looking for? The, the tone of the words need to raise to the level of seriousness. That is, it's damnable. This man will go to hell. If he continues in this path, he's in the grips of sin that will lead only to destruction. So he raises the level of his rebuke. <clears throat> and at this point, uh, I just say, let, let us get real for a minute. How many of us really practically in practice have a category of righteous rebuke which is this strong. So, what if I said in the hall something like this to one of our congregants and you and everybody else overheard? I think this is, if we think of it in really practical terms, someone to be rebuked in extremely serious sin. I'm, I'm inclined to say that most of us don't think there is ever a time or place for such strong words. In fact, many people previous <laughs> have left this church for maybe merely possibly kind of suggesting that you might understand scripture, maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit off. Your scripture understanding is not correct. I've had it. How dare you say something like that? No, we we need to understand that this is a cultural problem that plagues churches. In fact, it'll cause ministers to change the whole way church is done. Service runs in order to make sure people don't feel any sort of sharpness at all. However, if a church like this or any other church becomes a place where rebuke and necessarily rebuke is pointing out an error, it can be sharp or it can be soft. If rebuke goes by the wayside, so does correction. And then the pastor has lost vital tools for his church's sanctification. That church will be, be in a place of perpetual immaturity if rebuke and correction are not part of not only what the pastor's doing, but what each other are doing. If rebuke and correction, along with love, is a part of us, well, then will be fulfilled the scripture which reads, all scripture is breathed down by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that this church may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let us have thick skin, but tender hearts. That's the balance. You need to be able to receive things that are hard while also having a tender heart. Without that, immaturity will be the only result. So we have to be able to receive a, a rebuke like Peter's or read sad Psalms like we read today.
Peter <clears throat> gets down, though, to the very core of the gospel. He doesn't preach it in its fullness. But verse 20 is what I want to close out on here on a positive note. Verse 20, you're like, how do you get positive out of this rebuke here? <laughs> but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because of the thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. At the center of the gospel is exactly what he's pointing to in verse 20, which is totally missed by Simon. The spirit is not for sale. The, the spirit cannot be bought. This means really that salvation is not under the power of human will. It cannot be earned, worked for, merited, bought. It is not to be cooperated with as it relates to I have to do my part in order to be saved. And in the ultimate sense, that is justified or made new. This is a gift of the Spirit. That means it cannot be manipulated. Uh, uh, Finney, if some of you know who that is, was very uh, famous for not believing this. Not believing, <clears throat> basically believing that, that man has a free will that can be conjured up in such a way that he could get people to make the decision for Christ and, and therefore then be regenerated. We believe the opposite is the case. Regeneration comes before faith. So that doesn't work. <clears throat> but he would have an anxious bench uh, in order to stir people up and get a particular sort of emotions we could point to some modern examples of this where people have the lights dimmed and worshipped and strobe lights and fog machines so that people can feel a certain way and, be in, and conjure up certain feelings so as to become regenerate. No, 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 no. It is the gift of God. It means it, it's not earned. It cannot be cooperated with it is impossible to make any demands on a gift james white has famously and memorably in my mind said grace in order to be grace must be free must be free and and that that means god is free to save them those whom he wills this is the will of the spirit that changes a heart which is very comforting for us because it, it just means not that we're inactive or we don't say anything or just wait for God to do his work and pray and be silent. No, 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 no. They're still preaching. Philip went out. Proclaim the gospel. There's different living. There's speaking about Christ. No one will come to saving faith but through the gospel. But... Whether or not someone does ultimately is, is under God's complete and sovereign control and he distributes salvation according to his will. And we should be very thankful that our God over and over again has said that he desires, delights, uh, is, is much more merciful in his character than he is wrathful. And his wrath is serious, but it leads us to his mercy. So, 
every one of us sitting here, myself included, are completely and totally wretched, deserving of nothing except for eternal conscious torment in hell, like our EFCA confession says. But the gospel is about the grace of God. The, the gospel is about Christ Jesus, the perfect Son of God become man for undeserving sinners like us so that we might be reconciled to God. He has borne the curse of sin in his person. He has paid the penalty and uses by his kingly power now that the preaching of the gospel by us would be the means by which sinners go, Light on. I see. It doesn't take something different than normal words. It's beautiful. It takes just being able to communicate to the other person. It doesn't mean the lights will go on, but that is the means that God uses. It's not the right words in the sense that you have to figure out just the right thing to say. It's just just share about Christ is their king here and now, and they're sinning against him. They need to be forgiven and reconciled to him. So I say to all of us, be reconciled to God. Turn from your sin that damns you and turn to Christ who saves you. Forsake your wicked ways and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't waste a moment. You can tell this to your those you know who don't believe. Don't waste a moment. Bow the knee now, lest the Lord Jesus cut you down and off from the land of the living. Be wise. Worship the Son. Do not persist under the hard master that is sin. It's not worth serving. You are blind. You cannot find the way yourself. You are false. You need the truth. You are sinful which begets only death. Christ is life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the glory of the gospel is that all who look on Christ have the gift of God, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Let us pray.